Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast, featuring tech legend Jake Gunkelman. He's the man who has read well over half a million brain scans, and Dr. Marie Swingle, author of iMinds. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. The NeuroNoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you. Jake Gunkelman. Who have we invited to this show today? A good friend of mine for many years here, Rogene, Dr. Rogene Eichler-West. She's kind of stepped back into cognitive neuroscience from uh, more uh, clinical neurofeedback practice and that sort of thing. But she started there too. She's got quite a, uh, quite a history uh, of forensic uh, work. We, we should let her uh, tell her story a bit. We've had Fridays every other week for two-hour session uh, going over raw EEG since God knows how many years now. Close to 10. We've shared a lot of EEG images uh, online, discussed cases. She's an impressive uh, person, I thought. She deserves some uh, airtime, and given her unique experience uh, to share that, uh, there, there may be people in cognitive neuroscience that uh, kind of see a way in uh, uh, based on her experience. Anyway, welcome. Thank welcome. you very much for having me. Rogene, we saw you last year at the Susan Summit, and for those of you that weren't there, I believe there's a video out there somewhere that uh, you did a segment on AI. Do you want to touch on that? Because this show will appear on the Thursday when we are in Susan City for the 2023 Summit. So do you want to touch on artificial intelligence, what you talked about last year? We can tease everybody to get the video and then we can go into <laughs> what you're into now. Well, sure. Well, first, I need to say happy birthday, Jay, because the Susan Summit always uh, is co-occurring with your birthday. And I'm sorry I can't be there this year, but I wish you the best uh, always. Well, I, I have to say we will party hard regardless. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's good to hear. Um, yeah, last year I talked a little bit about the interface or the intersection rather between AI and um, QEEG, uh, mostly because I see that this is an area that I think clinicians are going to hear more and more about. And I think it's good to take a little of the mystery away and to better understand what does this what does this mean? How should I interpret it? Should I trust this? Um, and so uh, trying to explain a little bit, um, I think I started with uh, the fact that a lot of this AI work was initially intended to be a way of emulating how the brain um, makes decisions or how it processes information. And then as personal computers made it easy for everyone to build their own neural network, um, it became more of a, a, a tool to do a lot of different sort of pattern recognition work across a number of different fields. And what we're seeing today is things are starting to come a little bit more full circle, where from the brain to AI, we're back to using it to analyze the brain. And um, what we're finding is that there are, um, especially this last year, 
has taken a huge step forward with regards to the kind of AI technologies. Um, before we were uh, looking at pulling out patterns with something called artificial neural networks, which is this extremely sort of primitive idea of cortex where you've got a bunch of neurons that are all lined up and one uh, layer will uh, process information and make decisions and, pay and spend pass it to the next one. And uh, it was very, uh, very simple in construction. And what we're seeing now is a little bit more of like the chat GPT. What I find really interesting is that um, these chat GPT type transformer technologies and uh, stable diffusion technologies are now being used on volumetric data from the brain. So in the past year, I pulled up four different studies, which I would like to emphasize for this whole new next generation of applications. So um, uh, there um, has been, let's see, uh, some folks, uh, Tang et al., um, are now picking up engrams of word sequence from um, using large language models. So they're picking up uh, uh, what a person intends to say. So we're not just looking at little blips on the surface, but we're looking from MRI, um, the signal for the word, the context of words that would probably come before or might come after it. So we're not just looking at a single point in time and trying to interpret that, but we're looking at the context of many different areas at once and the relationship to past words, past signals that were just produced and anticipating what future ones might occur. The scariest, I guess, um, uh, that I have seen of all of this and I say the word scary because um, I've got a YouTube video that um, I can put into the chat. St. Louis and here locally at Albany Medical College, teaming up with other scientists and 29 epilepsy patients at Albany Medical Center to better understand the brain. The human brain is really the last frontier. We know as little about the human brain as we know about the floor of the ocean. It's really an unexplored territory. The experiment seemed simple enough. The researchers played Pink Floyd's song, Another Brick in the Wall for the Patients. All just a brick in the wall. We were looking for a song that had like all these different components, uh, lyrics, melodies, some silence component in there, some instruments. They suggested that everybody liked it and uh, I think every single patient and their families really liked it too. So it was a very good choice. I'm quite happy that we actually picked uh, Pink Floyd and not something else from the 80s. <laughs> but the reason behind the action, a bit more complex. Bruner and his team able to use the patient's brain signals to recreate the song. Uh, to make significant progress, not just in understanding, but also in the translation of these uh, understandings into therapies, into better diagnostic options, essentially to help patients, you know, with specific, very specific neurological disorders and diseases. And also, you know, in, in, in people who have uh, traumatic brain injury and other conditions, we can now better understand um, why they may perceive the world in a different way. Bruner says the findings will also help with additional research down the road. What we're now interested in is understanding how we can perturb this perception, mainly, you know, to alleviate specific conditions where people may not be able to pay enough attention. Maybe they may not be able to memorize uh, auditory information that comes in. So we're interested in, in deeper brain structures that govern information flow uh, throughout the brain. So we are interested now in the next chapter, which is neuromodulation.
saying he's glad Pink Floyd's music can be enjoyed by many for more than just the way it sounds. I think they're just quite happy that, uh, you know, their music provides value beyond just entertaining people. We're using intercortical electrodes. And of course, you're going to get a lot cleaner signal when you use that than if you do the you know, messy stuff on the surface um, from epilepsy patients. And they're able to reconstruct then from these recordings what it was that they were perceiving. And it sounds like something out of Twilight Zone if you listen to the, uh, uh, listen to the recording. And that's the scary part I mean is like, oh, man, it's a little creepy. It doesn't really sound like the album. And this is a person's brain reconstructing it. Um, you know, it's, for- it, it does. It does sound sort of like you're underwater listening to it or something, you know. But uh, uh, and if you know the song, you have a better chance of kind of getting it. But it's it's a crude reconstruction. Uh, um, but you know, it's direct from the cortex, and uh, if that's as crude as you can get, coming off the surface EEG is going to be you know, more smeared than that. Uh, so, but it, it, it's intriguing. Um, and the ability to try to predict is also intriguing. The concept of intention, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which precedes movement and uh, the Bereitschaft's potential, uh, which is uh, a slow cortical potential that precedes the movement is the intention. There's an electronegative buildup in the premotor cortex and the motor cortex uh, when you intend to move. And that, that actually activates or charges up the uh, circuitry that would be used to move. Uh, but you can quit intending and never move. Uh, but you can watch the intention uh, uh, by looking at the electronegative activity. And it precedes the movement usually by quite a few seconds they can predict the accuracy of a golf putt uh, with the EEG segment a couple of seconds before they swing. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> and, and if you want to make money, <laughs> tell somebody you can shave two points off their golf game. They'll pay you a few thousand dollars easy, you know? So, um, but uh, uh, they're, they're uh, literally looking at EEG um, uh, and, and golfing. Uh, Martin Arns has uh, done some very nice work in that area. The other advancement that I think is feeding into EEG is uh, GTAC in, um, uh, I believe they're in Austria. Um, they have these ultra high density um, electrodes now. I had a chance, the rep uh, came into town uh, maybe about a month and a half ago, and I had a chance to check them out. Totally drooling. I want one, right? Um, And um, with these high-density electrodes, they're now able to pick out from motor cortex, um, uh, they're able to pick out gestures, right? So before, we could play a game in the clinic where we'd have someone think about moving, you know, maybe uh, moving their left or right hand, and we'd pick up things um, on the surface. Now they're actually getting sequence of, uh, of hand gestures from this high density array. So um, uh, it's still quite limited in that you, you, have, you, you can't, you have to shave their head. Um, there's really no uh, ability to place these. Um, it's almost like a tin foil uh, with, uh, with embedded um, uh, um, contacts. 
And um, so it's only going to work on uh, folks who are, I don't know, perhaps in the military. So, well, there you go. We can maybe we can, we can throw that on you. I can get back to C3 and C4 now, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, we need the rep to come down and uh, to throw that on you and see, uh, see what can be uh, what can be determined. Yeah. It's pretty it's pretty exciting um, that normally we don't think of that resolution in terms of interpretability from something measured on the surface. So um, it's pretty expensive rig. It's uh, it's like $100,000. Um, so yeah. you're really pretty much invested in the, in the longer term. This isn't going to have something you have in the clinic. This is something that- What, what is the name again, Rogine? A G Tech, uh, the letter G dash T E C. Okay. Yeah. Really this is Chris Christoph Guger owns the company. Uh, well, he's the head of the company, and this is uh, basically Gert Furscheller's lab uh, from Graz, Austria, uh, taken into commercial uh, applications. All of the uh, work on marginal cog cognitive. They've got something that can detect people that are in a locked-in state uh, and do some communication with people in a locked-in state. Uh, they, they're very, very advanced. And their equipment at, well, $100,000, their equipment is not inexpensive, but the quality is astoundingly good. And uh, Christoph is the nicest guy. Uh, I've had him over to a couple of EG meetings, and he has a little booth, and but not too many people uh, are, are play in the same realm. Uh, so he, he was over and enjoyed himself and went skiing and had, had a good time. Uh, so he's been back a couple of times, but he's, uh, he, he's got a fabulous company and they have wonderful products, uh, uh, dry sensor, uh, the, mm -hmm. I think they call it Sahara, uh, you know, dry, of course, you know, so, um, but uh, um, the Beagle, which uh, searches for consciousness within people that may be locked in or maybe, you know, totally unconscious um, in a coma. Uh, uh, but but fabulous technology. And again, every uh, high level uh, application that was uh, worked on in Graz, Austria at the Technical University under Furcheller was, was uh, taken, in, taken to market. Dr. West, we we saw each other last year at Sioux Sun City. You were talking about artificial intelligence, and then the Chat GPT rage hit. Great timing. What have you seen as far as changes because of this popularity of people starting to get more involved in in AI? They're touching it. They're feeling it. Uh, have you gotten more requests? What have, what are the changes that you've seen since uh, last year at Sioux Sun City? I'm gonna. That's really really great question. I'm going to give you three different answers for that, um, and then we can. Um, before I forget, then we can circle back and and, and touch on all of them. Um, one is that um, we're seeing more um, more brains on a chip, neuromorphic technology. Um, this is a chip I actually I just got last Friday that we're going to be checking out for um, its ability to do um, different kinds of um, uh, detecting different kinds of sensor activity. And the idea is, is that it's meant to be constructed by something uh, called a liquid state network, which is supposed to emulate cortex. So more hardware implementations of brain inspired um, uh, concepts. Um, let's see. Uh, two, I think we're seeing 
a lot more work being done to put empathy in uh, in chatbots um, that we're learning to extract uh, subtle cues of emotion, subtle cues of empathy um, within the string of words, within the response to words. And there's actually a group at University of Washington who's doing some really, uh, really interesting work. The idea is that it is meant to be a surrogate for some kinds of one-on-one -on -one counseling. And there's never a complete surrogate for a human, but there are certain people who might not want to go talk to um, a person for whatever reasons of, uh, of, of safety or uh, that, they might, uh, uh, that they might feel. And to be able to type something online and to have it respond to them in a way that isn't um, uh, predictable, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, you feel that way, or just parroting back, right? So there's an art to that. Um, and what they're picking up on is how is it that you read a person, maybe you're uh, picking up a little bit on their, um, their attachment uh, style, um, their, the way that they, put, they use language, and you're subtly changing the way that the chat is parroting back at you uh, to be a little bit more supportive. And um, it, it's definitely getting uh, getting better and better in its ability to uh, to trick um, you into believing it, it's actually a human. So that would be two, the addition of emotion and empathy into the responses that we're getting um, uh, from these algorithms. The third thing I'm seeing <clears throat> is there is this big boom of everybody who wants to use um, wants to use artificial neural networks now to make predictions about the brain. So we've got a whole lot of EEG data that's now online. And, <clears throat> and there are two different camps. One, we've got the pure computer scientists who are very excited about BCI. Oh my goodness, these kids are all over Reddit and you know, they, how, do I, how do I get into this field? Questions all the time. And <clears throat> so they'll go and they'll take the data and they'll put it into an algorithm. But the problem that I'm noticing is that they don't understand the problem domain, right? So they, and they're predicting eye blinks and they're predicting EMG. And what I think needs to happen is this matures is a greater conversation between domain experts, clinicians who know how to interpret, and these people that have these wonderful technical skills. Can I just backtrack a, a, a little bit? I, I was joking about I'm the gremlin of technology today because uh, yeah. I was the first to go out and then you. So it's all my fault. Um, but no, just a, a, <coughs> a point that um, Rogine uh, made, and it was her second point in terms of the technology trying to emulate uh, humans or humanity. And <clears throat> I like her word. It's trick. OK, um, because we, we are trying to trick <coughs> senses, um, replicating emotion. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I was joking, but I'm not afraid of using losing my job. But it's just there's something really wrong with the premise of caretaking going to a non-human um, and the fact mm -hmm. that we're not making the space or the time for other uh, people, uh, again, in terms of helping, whether we talk about uh, parenting, whether we talk about uh, caretaking for elders. I mean, these are big areas where AI and, and, and tech is coming in. Uh, but now that it's coming into um, to therapy, I, I, I think we're at a tipping point and a turning point. And Rogine was uh, starting to say that uh, 
well, I'll just uh, lead into where the conversation was going and how youth is so comfortable with this that they don't even realize uh, the switch and bait that's going on. Well, I think other things that are driving this, first of all, their comfort, right? Yep. Um, secondly, I think, I mean, we have a crisis in this country of access to insurance to cover uh, healthcare. Mm -hmm. And if they're not covered, the idea that they can have a pseudo therapist on their phone anytime 24 seven when they need to talk and it costs them the amount of the download or maybe a monthly subscription is very appealing to them. Yeah. So they don't have the same nuance as a human, but you know, for the cost of, uh, of, of two Starbucks um, a month, um, they have something, right? And the other thing that I've heard is it seems as if young people today are much more trauma aware than in previous generations. And for those who have a self-identity that's aligned with having been exposed to some kind of trauma, they tend to be a little bit more um, uh, resistant to necessarily sharing some of their pain with another human. And if they can work it out first in a neutral way, um, meaning not with a person, but reflected back at them with a form of technology, um, they seem to be com comforted by, I can say whatever I want and um, I don't need to worry about being judged. I don't need to worry about uh, about things that probably exist more in their mind than is actually true of the therapeutic alliance. Um, if I could piggyback that and jump in, I mean, I'm, I'm really with you on your um, on your second point. The first point, however, is the one that I <clears throat> really want to hold up very, very high, which is they have some thing, not some one. Um, and in terms of, you know, if we look at what is the purpose of therapy, okay, it's to get you through an event, it's to teach you resilience, it's to let you know you're supported, whether intellectually, mentally loved, you know, uh, all of these things, it's to help you with self-value. Um, and, you know, when that is coming, quote unquote, from a machine, um, and, you know, I, I think Jay is familiar with my writing, you know, especially with uh, many ones, you know, your attachment becomes to a phone, your attachment becomes mm -hmm. to a program, your, your attachment becomes to technology <clears throat> rather than other humans. So, um, you know, now we're on the dystopic topic here, but uh, I, I think we really, really need to hatch this out, like, because you're comfortable is that what you need but of course yeah the affordability like who's available why do you go to therapy because your family is either the cause or they're not available <laughs> same thing with friends etc cetera, etc cetera. so of course we're looping mary let me ask you this mm -hmm. uh duty to warn if you tell uh, a uh, ai yeah. uh, therapist that you intend to harm yourself or others where's the liability for that piece of information being shared since the machine's gonna have a little bit more difficult time discerning yeah. whether or not you're being a little bit flippant and like, I hate that person, I wanna kill them. Yeah. Or um, or you're really yeah. feeling that at a much deeper level. Yeah. Yeah. Well, three twitches of the eye means <laughs> that this is real and two twitches means, you know, <laughs> <laughs> there's my humor. But yeah, I mean, obviously beyond valid point. Yeah. The, que the question everybody's asking, and it really pisses Jay off and, and Dr. Marie is, uh, 
people are trying to use this technology to get rid of artifacts and it's just not there yet. Is that true? And if it is true, will it ever get there? Can we get 500,000 brain scans read to get the knowledge of a Jay Gunkelman? Rogine? I'm saying not yet. I'm not saying we're not going to get there. I'm saying not yet. And don't jump the freaking gun. Right? That That's where I get so annoyed. I am not anti-technology, but I always end up talking counter it because we put it on this incredible pedestal and make horrendous errors. You know, whether it's sexism, racism, um, you know, who's in one one category or not. And of course, we, we loop that right back into artifact. You know, you know, the programs take things out that are so valuable um, and conversely keep things in that just to anybody who has any, okay, I'm going to really nasty, any basic <laughs> training. It's like, no way, people. You know, that's an eye blink, you know. <laughs> Well, there's definitely a lot of uh, a lot of publications out there, people trying to do that. But the problem is similar to what is seen in the radio frequency community, um, which is there's a big group uh, uh, where where I work that is interested in these kinds of problems. That if you've got uh, two different kinds of uh, two different kinds of signal coming from two different radios, someplace out in the wild, it's the physics of how do you actually separate them. And um, so we can do a lot of uh, a lot of mathematical tricks, um, but you know, I, I, Jay, I, I just want to parrot all the years of, of of training I've received from you, and it's like record it clean in the first place, and um, you know, uh, only take out what you know is absolutely artifact. People going down and selecting all the different uh, all the different components of ICA. So um, you know, it, it's it's interesting. I think that um, you can't uh, you can't fake your way around physics. Um, so I think sometimes it's the question that we're trying to answer: What kind of artifact are we removing? How high fidelity do we need the signal? What's the end goal? Um, but a lot of good people out there are, are are trying to do that. I think that's how we ended up with independent component analysis. I want to say in the early 90s, the idea of taking a principal component analysis and uh, changing the axes a little bit in order to uh, in order to pull out. And actually, uh, independent component analysis is considered a form of machine learning. So it in itself is uh, one of the more successful uh, kinds of AI being uh, uh, being applied to artifacts. And, and there's a few kinds of uh, ICA as well. I mean. Uh, uh, fast ICA is fast, but it's not very good. Um, it, it finds them serially, one at a time, and then takes them out. Uh, Infomax was a big step up because it found them in parallel and maximally separated the components. And, and you can see that in fast ICA, the bottom components are all just very spotty, uh, topographies, but in Infomax, everything's fairly uh, um, spatially constrained and uh, uh, you get much better results. Um, and then Amica is just so complicated that if you don't have a supercomputer, it just takes a lot of time. Um, uh, so it's, it's not as the clinical utility requires it to be able to be run, you know, so uh, but the uh, but ICA does a nice job of identifying components, and there are those that whine about it 
being used for de-artifacting. If you just don't de-artifact it, take the components that are meaningful EEG that you're going to be interested in and look for the source of that component. And don't, don't argue about de-artifacting. The components have meaningful pieces in them. And uh, when we're looking for thalamocortical dysrhythmias, for instance, you can see that in a component. And you, you'll see a low-frequency peak of a slowed alpha linked with a gamma or a high beta. In, in there, the, both those frequencies are in the same topography. So they're, they're linked. They're dancing to the same drummer. Or they wouldn't be in the same component. And, and as such, you can... And when you identify the thalamocortical dysrhythmia, then the location of that ends up telling you whether this is likely tinnitus or pain or movement disorder or a reward deficiency, depression, uh, lack of motivation, anhedonia, uh, addiction, uh, eating disorder, uh, uh, you know, a reward deficiency issue at the anterior cingulate. So, you know, it's, you can use the component analysis to identify these things and don't even argue about the de-artifacting, you know. I mean, uh, uh, de-artifact any way you want, but you can take the meaningful component out and, oddly enough, you can feed it back. You know, you <clears throat> right now, what are you feeding back? Well, uh, uh, we're suppressing this frequency. We're training this frequency up. We're suppressing this frequency. Um, well, you can train a component, and the component is going to be insensitive to other things, uh, like eye blinks and muscle tension and things like that. So, um, you know, there. I think the ICA uh, in clinical application is still underutilized. Um, but, you know, the, there are those that are starting to, uh, uh, Antonio Martins Morrow, uh, and, uh, you know, PhD in London Scientific is his practice for neurofeedback uh, and, and neurofeed, neuromodulation, not just neurofeedback. And, you know, he, he does component-based feedback and um, it, uh, it, it, it does quite nicely with it, so... That, that there's there's a lot of high end stuff that, that, that we we need to end up uh, uh, focusing on that are clinically useful that we can adopt. You talked about high end stuff, Jay. Um, I'd love to go back, <clears throat> excuse me, um, a few uh, points and actually take it down a few levels. <clears throat> I've I've talked about this before. Somebody who's on the floor with clients, you know, not a research component, um, and I find artifact invaluable um, and also leaving it in so classic is working with kids with ADHD artifact is a variable you know when your artifact goes down <laughs> you know that tells you something um, last week I was at a, a dystonia um, uh, meeting okay same thing you know when your artifact goes down you're actually affecting something other movement disorders like parkinson's etc cetera, etc cetera. so you know that old joke of don't throw the baby out with the the, the bath water so one is artifact actually as variable um the other of course is artifact that we don't quite 
understand. Um, I mean, I mean, that's how I essentially got into this. Gosh knows how many years ago in terms of, you know, a, a marker that wasn't artifact at all. So, um, yeah, be careful. Like I, I, I love artifact. It sounds, I don't like artifact from cell phones, <laughs> but, <laughs> but all the other artifacts. You can read a lot uh, from it. Um, you know, uh, reading EG, sometimes you identify other things, uh, temporal mandibular joint syndrome uh, with a, a one masser that's just tied down and the other one's not. And, um, uh, and uh, they have done uh, uh, yoked studies uh, that ended up teaching people yeah. uh, not EEG control, but they, uh, they had yoked EEG but they, they had their own eye movement and muscle fed back to them. So they couldn't pierce the, um, the, the fact that they were in the, the, the sham uh, group. But when you teach control over your eye movements, that's frontal lobe uh, eye fields are what you're controlling. And when you learn how to relax and get rid of the muscle, uh, that, that's again, uh, something that you've learned. So they actually got some feedback that was quite useful. Uh, and at initial outtake, there was not an easy differentiation between the clinical group and the control group that got these yoke feedbacks. Uh, but their feedback wasn't specific. And at six months and one year follow up, uh, the clinical group that got uh, specific <laughs> feedback ended up having a better outcome. Pardon the talk. He's, he's... Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up, Jay. Dog um, feedback. That's that's one thing that I was, you know, there's uh, controlled, and then there's there's a you know control and experiment, and then there's yoked, and then there's yoked. They're not the same. They're not the same. <laughs> so so Roisin, we saw each other last year. We're going to miss you today as we're in Susan today. We get back together again a year from now. What do you see in your crystal ball? If you could take a rag and wipe it clear, what does the future look like for what you're working on? Oh, that's a really that's a really interesting interesting question. Um, so, um, personally, I'm trying to decide: do I answer this more? Where do I see, like, in terms of evolution? Uh, field or um, just from my own perspective. And I guess I prefer- That's where like your chat GPT. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, that, that, that I don't even know if I could begin to- uh, The future is bright. <laughs> <laughs> give you three nicely constructed paragraphs and- uh, yeah. Or yeah, um, the future is bright with intonation and emotion. <laughs> okay, right, right, exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll do it in a very, uh, a very positive and empathetic way. Um, I, I think that just the fact that we've seen four uh, transformer type of studies, chat GPT type of studies, latent diffusion type of studies on uh, MRI, MEG data, um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. An area that I would love to uh, apply this to would be on ERPs. Um, right, so we have something that is not just here's the evolution of signals on the surface of the brain, but here's the response to a time locked stimulus. And um, so that's an area that I'm uh, hoping, expecting, wanting uh, to see some papers on in the next uh, the next couple of years, because that'll give us a little bit more. Um, I, it's not going to play back dark side of the moon, 
but um, I'm hoping that it might give us a little bit more insight into um, the brain's response to uh, acute events. Um, and it may also help us to solve some of the mathematical issues um, that require us currently to present a stimulus a 100, 500 times in order to in order to resolve a signal, in order to resolve the ERP. Um, that presumably using something like, like a, uh, a transformer technology is going to have uh, built inside of it a little bit more tolerance to how time-locked uh, these signals are. That's going to require, um, right now our interpretation is latency based on an average, peak height based on an average. So um, uh, we're going to need to uh, change a little bit of how it is that we're interacting with, uh, with ERPs. Um, we're not going to look at uh, just peak and latency, but perhaps there's something else now yeah. that uh, could be uh, inferred about the signal yeah. if we're looking at uh, the full scope of what happened before, what happened afterwards. Um, in more of a, of a transformer, they call it attention, which is uh, how much the algorithm is paying attention to what happened before and happened afterwards. So I'm not trying to say it's uh, going to solve the um, uh, the grand averaging problem, but I'm saying that I'm expecting that we're going to be able to use these time lock signals with a different sort of uh, algorithmic interpretation as they start to run it through these transformer algorithms. So that's something that I'm, I'm pretty excited to see if that happens. The neural network dynamics that are controlled by slow cortical potentials, the, the, the brain has diffuse areas that have to hook up instantaneously to function, and they have to be created as a network. So they're turned on and off as a network by the slow cortical potentials, turning them on electronegative as active, they're on, and then they go electropositive and turn off that network and turn on a different network. So the network dynamics is actually seen as slow cortical potential, low frequency changes in the EEG that the EEG is riding on. Most people filter it out. Well, when you're looking at the spectra of an individual, sometimes you see the nice alpha peak and everybody's happy with the alpha tuning and all that. What's missing? Look to the left side. There is no delta rise, the, the normal upsweep at the left-hand side of that spectra. If that's missing, there's no neocortical dynamics. So the slow cortical potential waxing and waning is missing, and it'll look like a delta deficit in a database. There's not a delta deficit, for God's sakes. Don't train delta. Um, uh, but you have to activate the neocortical dynamics. So you're not stuck in a default mode. You're not, you know, you need to kick in the salience network to turn on the executive network to, you know, you need that dynamics to have function. And uh, you, the, the slow content is something that, uh, that you know, watching the network, networks formed and turned on and off is something that's at a low frequency that is usually not looked at with EEG that's it's chopped off um, uh, but it's it's exactly that that ends up making it all make sense you have to integrate the oscillatory EEG with the slow cortical potential infralow infraslow however you want to call it but it, um, in 
Europe, Burr bomber filtered off the EEG and focused on the slow. And, and, and the EEG was an artifact. And here in the US, we filtered off the low and looked at the oscillatory EEG. And, and until both are stacked back together, you can't really understand consciousness and how the brain is working. Uh, you can't see intention. Uh, you can't actually identify attention uh, without a slow cortical potential. So um, we, we've got a lot of uh, integrating to do and uh, the models. Now, um, I had a, a, a client who had been sent to me and they had a series of EEGs across a few years. And the person had a really well-defined uh, ischemic area, uh, post-traumatic ischemia. And uh, so there was an easily identifiable transient in this EEG. And they had quite a few of the EEGs in the same person. So they, and uh, they had me mark where all of those were. And then they had an AI scrubbing on that, trying to predict with AI uh, where those were without being blinded to my uh, uh, picks, but they're matched to my picks basically. And they, their first pass was not very good, but then they talked to me and asked what it was I was seeing. And I described the, the, the kinds of things that made the waveforms that I was looking at. And, and their second pass got a 75% match. And they, they said, uh, well, you know, we're getting better at 75% match. And I said, well, what makes you think I didn't make 25% mistake? <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, but they're, they're getting uh, better at matching patterns, uh, a, a subtle uh, mid-temporal sharp slow transient that's a nonspecific irritative or ischemic process. And uh, focusing on those transients, they're going to end up having you know, better outcomes clinically. So uh, it, it, I think it was a good project to kind of fiddle with. You know, Jay, your comment on they continued to train it and until the accuracy increased and the idea of, uh, is it accurate? Your joke about, you know, maybe you were 25% wrong. Um, one of the trends in machine learning, um, there was a big conference at Princeton about two summers ago because the concern is the number of studies where they will overtrain the AI until it's 100%, but that AI can then not generalize to new types of situations. And um, how they do this, it's called leakage because you're leaking the right answer to the machine and you continue to leak the right answer until it knows every instance of uh, what it's been shown but it's overtrained to the part point where if you give it new something slightly adjacent, so some waveform that not exactly the same shape, but means the same thing. If it hasn't seen that in particular, it's going to it's going to miscategorize it. And um, oh, this is actually uh, right before we uh, we had the uh, the internet dropout. Um, I, I was saying that we have the problem with the computer scientists who don't know the domain. One of the issues with folks who are using machine learning in a box is um, that they will do the same thing, that they'll keep showing examples of their data to the machine, 
the machine then uh, is like, oh, yes, I've seen every example. I can categorize these perfectly. Um, and then they will go into the literature and they'll say, ah, we've got 100% accuracy, 100% precision. Didn't we do a good job? Um, and you know, it, it, it doesn't generalize well to new situations. The problem, I think, <clears throat> for, uh, for clinicians is they read the literature. Um, it's like you could hack p-values in statistics, right? Um, that the problem is that if you don't have an understanding of in a critical eye towards how did they train the model, how many instances, what was the split between training, validation, and test, that someone's going to read this and say, well, this paper is better than this paper because they have 100% over here and these people only have 82%. And that's a, 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 a false um, assumption to be making about some of these papers. And when I do give uh, talks on AI, I'm supposed to talk to ISNR, I think, in two weeks. And um, that's one of the points that I really want to stress is as exciting as this all is, we, we, we need to be skeptical over um, how some of these sleights of hands are, um, you know, what, what it really means when we measure how well something does. So I, I think your, your point about uh, even the human who is our ground truth, and I think you made this point at, at Susan last year, using the human as ground truth, we need to uh, keep in mind that there are false negatives and false positives that are embedded within our ground truth as well. And we're simply teaching the machine to make the same mistakes. So uh, that really resonated with me, your uh, point you just made. Yeah, the, you know, the magnification of, of error as well as the, I call it AI versus AI, right? And the first AI, of, of course, stands for artificial um, intelligence, but the second AI is assisted intelligence and and i think in terms of where we are in history i think we really need a balance between developing pure ai meaning that we feed information and coach um, and then assisted intelligence um wherein it's it's still based on you know the the human uh takes that information and there's a secondary level of judgment on it um and i think it's even obvious in terms of how I'm explaining now, there, 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 there's an overlap. You know, the terms are not isolated, but I think um, that the major issues were over eager uh, to give everything uh, to the machine, presuming that the machine will be superior and absolutely forgetting. And I'm just driving Jay's point home and, and Rogine's point home, uh, which is assuming um, that when we put in flawed data, just magically, uh, the machine is going to be able to um, make that better. And I think that's a critical assumption. Dirk DeRitter had a thousand people that had tinnitus in a database. And he had the algorithm identify the tinnitus with the, with the thalamocortical dysrhythmia. And it was 100% accurate normal versus tinnitus in walks a Parkinson's patient and the algorithm says tinnitus because they have a thalamocortical dysrhythmia it's just not in the same spot uh, which prompted the the study that they published with the thalamocortical dysrhythmia in different locations means different things and you know pain movement disorders um, reward deficiency and tinnitus 
and and it may not be just limited to i mean there there may be more fine resolution uh with a with the anterior midline at some point and we do have a cognitive and affective divisions of the anterior cingulate so we may end up with with finer resolution in our analysis of that but um you know the the 100 accuracy uh, was 100 percent accurate in the circumstance of yeah. normal versus and those are discriminants the problem with the discriminant is that you're an a or a b what if you're a c you're an a or a b to the discriminant you know uh and and that's the problem with discriminant analysis um there there aren't enough discriminants uh in order for us to end up properly characterizing everything um, you have to teach the machine the alphabet. <laughs> the binary. <laughs> Dr. Marie, is it, is it possible to do therapy through text? Uh, I mean, my immediate um, issue is with uh, uh, temporal sequencing. Okay. And, um, you know, one of the issues with, with text is the, the, the arousal. Um so my my initial response is you're you're you've you've got a a base problem that you're trying to to counter there um is it possible to support through text is it possible to do positive things through text sure um but therapy um right now i would say no um but but i'm open I'm really open. I mean, a lot of the what? individuals that I, that I am aware of that use this, it actually, it, it makes the arousal worse. It makes the anxiety worse. Um, people do not develop resilience. You're part of the product problem, not part of the solution. But I'm open. You know, ask me six months from now. But Okay, right now, I will. Yeah. <laughs> so where, I'm, where I'm going with this, kids today, all they do is text, okay? So they want to communicate through text. So if you have somebody on the other end of the phone that's texting you and you're I mean, there's, is there a finite amount of answers that you can respond back to, to a statement? If so, can that be trained and can you use a, a chat bot to triage somebody? Are you ready for my humor? Yeah. Yup. <laughs> <laughs> or emoji, the previous generation emoji. Yeah. <laughs> Therapy through emoji. Uh, it, oh, well, no, I, that that was a joke because you know currently oh. it's the yup, you know, uh, the half generation between me and the and the and youth today, it, it, it's this one. I mean, this this is dated now. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm I'm watching this all the time. Um, I have to be very very cautious. I don't mind overtly sharing what generation I'm in. I'm the last generation on this planet that knows what the world was <clears throat> pre iTech. Meaning, my whole developmental cycle was complete. I was, you know, 26 ish uh, when uh, and doing my masters when the um, uh, when the tech invasion happened in the universities, right? So I have a very interesting perspective, which I hope is not purely resistance. Um, but and we also have to consider that I'm a therapist and I'm on the clinical floor. So I see individuals with quote unquote problems. Um, 
But I've also been pigeonholed in that, that that's, that's an accusation. You don't know because you only see people with issues, but you know, you, you also have a, a view on, you know, the, I don't want to say the normative population, but essentially the population that's not um, in, in therapy. And I'm just seeing outrageous rates of what I refer to as hyper arousal. Um, I, I talked about, um, you know, uh, uh, temporal frequency sequential the, the anxiety the the not knowing if when you're going to get a response if it's a positive response a negative response we all kind of know that sometimes negative response is more rewarding than positive response you know, what is this doing at the base level arousal well i i can tell you what it's doing we're all kind of flying at this level and have trouble quieting so if you're going to suggest to me that we provide therapy to help with the quieting by the exact same method that I believe is responsible for the raise in arousal. <laughs> We're not thinking too logically here, right? Um, but, you know, keeping ties, if you're feeling a little bit lonely, sending a message out, hey, I'm alive. And somebody goes back, yeah, you're alive. I'm glad you're alive. I'm being a bit facetious in terms of my choice of, uh, of vocabulary here. But yeah, that that's all good. You know, just that 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 touching base. You don't need a full therapy session to to feel valued or validated or loved. You know, sometimes a little heart is all you need, right? So I, I don't want to minimize that. But if we're talking therapy, not yet. It's just needed. There's a rent. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of milk bones will be fine. <laughs> for me or the puppy <laughs> all of us uh dr west where are you going to be the next couple of weeks you said isnr anything else coming up on your calendar that we can point people to uh probably isnr is the only thing that would be of interest um, um probably to folks uh folks watching this um a lot of what i'm doing uh some of it is still brain some of it is more on the on the mathy side and uh I put your uh, uh, your listeners to to sleep if we uh, if we went in that direction too far. I um, don't know. ISNR, it's in two weeks, and um, uh, yeah, hoping to um, again bring up the points about being suspicious when you read some of these papers um, to let them know what's coming down the road with respect to um, uh, with respect to AI that's meant to be uh, I don't know a surrogate for or perhaps at some point in, uh, a, a complement to uh, traditional therapy, mm -hmm. and uh, talk a little bit about how it all got its start with uh, its relation to the brain in the first place back uh, uh, just a few years after uh, actually uh, Hans Berger and, uh, and EEG became a thing. It's it, yeah, it's interesting. It's been around since. Um, uh, since the 40s was the first time that um, computational models based on the brain uh, were first introduced, McCulloch and Pitts in like 46 or something. So um, in some senses, it's not entirely new. It's just that we've got faster computers and that we've uh, spent more time thinking about how to make algorithms efficient. You know, one area that... Um, uh, Mary made me think about uh, an area of AI is called a human in the loop. Mm -hmm. And it's the idea that you don't train up the machine and then use it with the human, but it's constantly learning and interacting from us. And it also, um, when Jay was talking about uh, uh, Nils um, in Germany and locked in slow cortical potentials, this is work that I think came out right at the start of the pandemic. And that is human in the loop. So you have this person who's locked in, you're measuring 
you're, you're measuring the electrical activity of their brain. You're interpreting it with respect to the letters that are being shown on the monitor. So the machine learns what the brain does when it sees these letters, but then you want this person to have a higher chance of, of accuracy. So then you teach the human now, like neurofeedback, you teach them to overexpress whatever that pattern is. And so you're, you're sort of meeting in the middle. The machine learns first, and then you teach the human to uh, exaggerate or uh, to bring more clarity to that signal. And they learn from each other. And uh, in the end, you have a person, I think he asked, the first thing he asked for was a beer or something when he was first able to, uh, you know, the first sentence, great, we've been training you up uh, for the past, I don't know, six months or so, and uh, um, make your first sentence, you know, I'd like a beer. So that, it's a- Hell um, yeah. Great. <laughs> that situation. That's what, gonna, that's what I'm gonna say in Sioux Sun City uh, next week, Jay. Well, you know, I, uh, we take over the Yacht Club for our event, and uh, they have a full-service bar, uh, which is a very nice bar, uh, in one portion of the building, and we take over the uh, what would normally be a dining hall, uh, and it's set up classroom style with tables and stuff, and it seats 80 people uh, with lots of room, so you don't end up, uh, you know, we don't want a super spreader event, and Everybody will be masked. Um, uh, we, you know, we're being careful. We, we had it last year, and nobody uh, ended up with transmission within the group. So uh, uh, we'll we'll try to repeat that. Um, but it, it it should be fun. Uh, Director Ritter over from uh, uh, actually, I think he might be on his way to New Zealand from Belgium and hopping by this way. Uh, uh, goodness knows, he he pops. Well, he's going to be in Tucson like right now. This podcast, it's coming out. He's going to be right <laughs> there, Jay. And well, we just... you, you're going to enjoy uh, uh, him. He's he's a lot of fun. He's very approachable and uh, uh, extraordinarily knowledgeable. Um, anyway, I, uh, I, I, I uh, find few people that can uh, go deep in every silo, uh, and he's one of those. So... Um, and then Martin Arns from the Netherlands, uh, Sante Gabran from uh, Singapore, uh, uh, folks from the U.S. like uh, Ron Swasina. Uh, we're we're going to have a, a good crew of uh, uh, individuals there. Uh, uh, it's getting a little long. I think it's time for a donation to the student fund oh. with an auction off of the beard. Um, you know, uh, um, I've got uh, kayaks set up for lunch break for 10 people to go uh, with a guide up, up in, into the marsh. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're planning as much of a good time in the three days as you can squeeze in. And we joke, we joke about the beer, but a good part of the session is not so much what you learn, but the networking that goes on, because everybody does come back yeah. to the bar and we do hold court at the bar and we meet and greet and... Uh, it's yep. a great learning experience. Why am I telling you this now on the day of the summit? Because there'll be a video out that we will have a link that you can yep. check it out. Right, Jay? Absolutely. 
uh, the the camera uh, handheld in the bar uh, uh, catches lots of interesting interviews. A lot of editing, a lot of editing. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why we're wearing masks. That's the real reason we'll be wearing masks, right? I'll have the Batman mask on. I don't know if you'll be able to tell who I am. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. West, how do we uh, how do we send listeners and viewers your way if they want to learn a little bit more about you? Maybe even send some business your way. Well, um, I have uh, still have my website up at uh, Northwest Neuro Pro. Um, that's where I do. Um, I, I still do a little bit of consulting outside of my uh, my research job. Um, and I would say there's not a lot on there. I should probably update it. There's not a lot there on AI right now. Um, but I would say that folks that are interested in perhaps doing a research study or, um, I, I don't know, just want to chat about AI in general and, um, you know, please contact me there and I'd be uh, um, happy to happy to give a talk or I'd be uh, happy to give some uh, consulting advice on what, what, your, uh, what your project is. I mean, what can I say? Brains and math, what's not to love? <laughs> we'll put the link right here. Dr. West, Dr. Swing, Jay Gunkelman, thank you for another outstanding NeuroNoodle Network podcast. See you in Susan. Susan. Actually, Sassoon. Sassoon. Uh, Sassoon. Oh, gosh. Uh, (laughs) Now uh, I've learned. Sassoon. Sassoon City. And Sassoon is uh, a word that means West Wind. Uh, and uh, we expect 80 degrees during the afternoon and 50s at night. So cool evenings, cool mornings, very nice afternoons. So uh, and uh, uh, partly cloudy, but no rain. So it, it looks like kind of perfect uh, weather. The Chamber of Commerce. Will be happy. All right, look out, Chamber! Here we come. <laughs> we bid you adieu. Thank you, Dr. West. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Neuronoodle Podcast is supported by listeners and businesses just like you.